guys, good morning. Welcome to Grace Church. Thanks for being here this morning. Hope your Christmas season is going well so far. Uh, as Josiah said, um, this is a great time of year. Maybe you've been praying for somebody or you got somebody in your life that, you know, is struggling or going through a hard time and they're not like connected to God. Maybe they're not a part of a church. This is a great time to invite people. This is, if there's, as he said, if there's two times a year people are thinking about church, this is one of them. So I'd really encourage you guys, invite some folks to come on Christmas. We're excited for the services that week. We're also excited for services this week. Um, we have this new phenomenon in our house, see if you can relate to this, where um, you, you ever have like stuff in your life that uh, maybe you've been doing for a while or maybe you just kind of feel like you know the, the right way to do it, you know, like you know the best way to do it. And then someone comes along and uh, they have a different way of doing things that maybe is actually even better than the way that you normally do it. I'm curious, like, how you respond in a situation like that. You know, when, so, when somebody, maybe you're working with somebody and they're like, I would do it this way. For me, some, sometimes I go, yes, your way is better than mine. Let's do it your way. Other times I rear back, I'm like, no, 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 we're going to do it my way. So our kids are getting a little bit older now, right? And it's weird when kids get older, they start having opinions about things, and they, and they, and they actually have ideas of how to do things, right? And so um, we had a situation. So we got a dog recently. I'll share that with you. We, have a, we got a little lab puppy that is uh, crazy and lovable at the same time, a ton of work. And so we have a, a crate. They don't call them cages anymore because that sounds harsh, I guess. We have a crate for the dog, and we usually keep the crate in our family room, um, but sometimes, you know, we have people over and we don't want like a dog cage in the family room. So we got to move it. So I have a little office down, down the hallway here. And so we got to move the cage into the office. And so um, the other day, we were, we, I think we had Grace Group actually. We're like, we got to get this cage out of here. So we, we're, I'm like, Luke, help me. Let's get this thing in my office. And so we get it. We have an old house that the doorways are narrow on the old house, right? They're not like the nice 32 inches. They're like 28 inches. And so this cage is also 28 inches, right? And so I'm like, Luke, help me. I think if we just turn it on its side, we could get it in. It's going to be fine. It's going to be no problem. And we start like carrying it toward the door. And Luke's like, Dad, maybe we should just fold it down you know, because then it'll go in nice and easy. But to fold it down, it takes like an extra 30 seconds, you know, which is big when you're trying to move a cage in another room. And so I'm like, no, 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 it'll be fine. Like, it'll, it'll be fine. We'll put it on the side, we'll get it in there. And so we get it, and we're like wedged in the doorway, you know, <laughs> and, it's, and it's not going anywhere. And I'm like, just push really hard. <laughs> so, and so we push really hard, and we get it in there, and I step back afterwards, and I'm like looking at the scratches all along the door frame, and I'm like, I probably should have listened to him, right? Like, I probably should have listened to my 11-year-old son. He had the better way. I was a little stubborn. And sometimes when we have, like, things that we have to do in life, and we think, you know, maybe we want to do it our way, or we think we know the best way on some of those things, it can get us into a little bit of trouble, right? And sometimes it can get us into more trouble, more significant trouble than just scratches on a doorway. Well, this weekend, we're continuing on in uh, the Christmas series that we started last week called Peace on Earth. And we're going to look at a guy this weekend who was searching for peace. He was searching for peace in his life. And he almost missed it. He almost missed the peace that God was offering him because it didn't come about the way that he thought it should come about, the way that he wanted it to come about. So last week we started this Christmas series called Peace on Earth, and we said, but, but we have a question mark after it. It, it. Because a lot of times we live in our world, and you look around, 
you turn on the news, you walk out the door, whatever it is, and you see so much chaos, right? Like we sang a song literally called Peace Has Come. That's the name of the song, right? We talk about, you know, peace on earth and goodwill toward men at Christmas time, but many times it doesn't feel like peace has come. Our world doesn't feel like a very peaceful world. You know, there's chaos, there's pain, there's struggle, there's violence, there's suffering, right? And sometimes, you know, we, like, we feel those things and it breaks our heart because we long for something different. We long for peace. We talk about peace. We talk about, you know, the peace that God brings at, at Christmas and sending Jesus. And we see violence and chaos all around and it breaks our heart because we long for something different, right? And so what do we do? Well, we search for peace wherever it is that we could find it. And so in this series, what we've been doing and what we're going to do uh, this morning and then also next week is we're looking at three people in the Bible that were searching for peace. And they were doing it in different ways. And it's interesting, the people in the Bible that lived, like, especially the, the one that we're going to look at today, thousands of years before us, thousands of years, and yet the struggle is still the same, right? The ways in which they were searching for peace, even thousands of years ago, are the same ways that we're searching for peace today. And so last week we looked at this woman and this woman's interaction with Jesus. It was a Samaritan woman and Jesus meets her by a well. And this is a woman who was uh, extremely lonely. She would have been somebody who was an outcast. We kind of dug into that a little bit last week. And yet it was a result of her own decisions. The reasons that she was shunned by people were a direct result of the choices that she was making. And yet she was somebody who was longing for peace in her life. She was somebody who was longing for wholeness. And the way that she thought that she could find it, two ways we talked about last week, one was the acceptance and approval of others, right? Like if people would just like me, if people would just approve of me, if people would just value me, then I'd finally be happy. Then I could finally experience peace. And so what this woman did was she went from man to man to man looking for somebody to say, you're valuable, you're worth something. Five husbands, when Jesus encounters her, she's on her six. The second thing that we talked about last week was in her search for peace. She was actually searching for peace with God, like through God, but she was only willing to do it in her own way, through her Samaritan religion. And so she was willing to search for God in a way that was comfortable for her, in a way that was convenient for her. I'll go to God the way that I want to go to God. Because after all, there's lots of different ways to approach God. God's called lots of different names. I'm going to do it in a way that's comfortable for me. But where we ended last week, our conclusion was neither the approval and acceptance of others or a religion that's comfortable for me will ever lead to lasting peace. Neither of those two things. I, I may feel like I could finally be whole if people say you're valuable, you're important, but it doesn't lead to a lasting peace. Approval and acceptance of others doesn't lead to a lasting peace. Approaching God the way that I want to approach God on my own terms doesn't lead to a lasting peace. The way that I approach God is the way that he says I should approach him. So this weekend, we're going to look at someone who's kind of at the other end of the spectrum compared to the lady we looked at last week. The, the Samaritan woman at the well was an outcast. She was somebody who was lonely. The guy that we're going to look at this week is the opposite. He was somebody who was really important. He was somebody who was a very successful guy. He was somebody who had lots of different victories in his life, and yet he had this very severe physical ailment that was causing peace in his life 
to be elusive. And so he goes searching for peace. And he does it by going to a prophet of God for help, which sounds good, right? The problem was, similar to like me in the dog cage, he wanted to get peace the way that he wanted to get peace, right? And he almost missed it because he wasn't willing to do what God wanted to do in him in order to bring peace into his heart. So I'm excited to look at this together. Um, why don't we jump into it? If you've got a Bible, grab it, open it up to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. By the way, if you haven't downloaded the app, you should do that. It literally, we have Wi-Fi in here. It literally takes 10 seconds to download it. And then on that app is a whole bunch of different information. One of the things, one of the little tabs on there is a Bible tab, and you can just follow along on there if that's easier for you. Um, let, let me give you, as you're flipping there, let me give you a little bit of background on 2 Kings. So um, this is one of the historical books in the Bible, right? So the Bible, this book here, it's one book, but it's made up of a whole bunch of different other kind of books inside, kind of micro books inside. And those books inside are uh, different genres, right? And so you have historical books, which we're going to look at here this morning, but you also have poetical books. You have letters, right, that people wrote, like one person wrote to another person or one person wrote to a group of people. You have prophecies. There's all kinds of different genres of literature in the Bible. What we're going to look at today is a historical book. And so 2 Kings, here's what happens. 2 Kings is um, written about Israel, okay, and when it's written, by the time period that it's written, Israel used to be, it started out as one nation, right, and so you have, when, it, when they get their first king, their first king was Saul, their second king was David, right? King David, probably the most famous king of all. The third one is Solomon, David's son. During those first three reigns, all of them were about 40 years, it was one nation, one country, okay? After Solomon, after the third king, it splits in half. And you have a northern kingdom that retained the name Israel. And then you have a southern kingdom that was called Judah, okay? And so when second kings is written, it's written really about Israel, but it's broken in half. It's two countries, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And so Second Kings, what it talks about, as you may have guessed from its name, is the kings in Israel, okay? And so it talks about the kings. It describes their lives, what's going on with them, the, the kind of the history of what happened in their country during that time of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But it's interesting, when you look at those kings individually, and you see that, so there's First Kings and Second Kings, two books, broken in half, right? And so all, both of those books talk about the kings in the northern and southern kingdom. The ones in the northern kingdom, Israel, every one of them were rotten. Like, they were not good kings. They were not people that, that like, were seeking God, depending on God, anything like that. Most of them in the southern kingdom were rotten people as well. There were a few good kings in the southern kingdom, but most of them were rotten. So what God did was he would send prophets to them, Right? over and over and over again. And the prophets were God's mouthpiece. And the prophets were telling the kings and the people in those kingdoms what God was saying. Most of the time it was, come back to me, worship me, stop screwing around, right? And so in 2 Kings, where we're going to pick up, we see one of these prophets. It's a guy named Elisha. And so Elisha was an, an amazing guy. So there's, there's two prophets that have very similar names that are right after each other. One is Elijah. Elijah with a J. The other is Elisha. So Elijah is the predecessor. We're not talking about him today. We're talking about Elisha, okay? And so Elisha is an amazing guy. Both of them are amazing guys. Elisha is an amazing guy. I love 
you, you should read a little bit about him, like the things that God does. He was a guy that was totally committed to God, and he had a very special relationship with God, and God did amazing things through him. He's like one of my heroes, not only because he was an amazing guy that loved God, but he was also bald, which is really important to me. There's something about that that speaks to me, right? Do, do you know the story? <laughs> this is stupid, but do you know the story of how we know that Elisha's bald? Do you know this? It's in 2 Kings chapter 2. This is not where we're going today, but this is interesting. This is one of those bizarre stories in the Bible. And so Elisha's like walking along. I think he's going up to Bethel. And this group of boys, this like rowdy boys, I guess, are making fun of him because he's bald. And they go, what do they say? Get out of here, baldy. They're like trying to run him off. Literally, call, that's, a, that's the translation into English. Get out of here, baldy. Get out of here, baldy. And Elisha is annoyed with them. And so he actually curses them. He calls down a curse from them. And two bears come out of the woods and maul these boys. Like, that's the story. So the moral of the story is never make fun of a bald guy. Because we have a very special, all of us, we have a very special connection to God. And we may, anyway. Okay, so that's not where we're going today. Um, we're going to pick up in chapter 5. In chapter 5, uh, the nation of Aram, so which, this is another nation, so we have Israel broken in two, okay? The nation of Aram is another nation, and uh, they were fighting with Israel. And so when I say fighting, it wasn't like all-out war, but there was unrest between the two. And what happened was Aram would send these little raiding parties into Israel to kind of wreak havoc with them. And so there is a man named Naaman, okay? Naaman was the captain of the guard. He was the captain of the army of the king of Aram, which means he's a general with them, which means he is the second most important person in the entire country of Aram. He, under the king, he has got the most power of anybody else, okay? And so this guy named Naaman, he's a great man. He's a powerful man. He had lots of different victories, a very successful guy. Apparently, he's also a very handsome man. So this is interesting. In the Bible, many times, it's different in our culture today, but in the Bible, many times, a person's name wasn't just what they were called, but it was also descriptive of them or their family, things like that. So this guy's name, Naaman, what Naaman means, it comes from the Hebrew word name, which is N-A-E-M, name, and what name means is delightful, pleasant, beautiful, gracious, well-formed. I like that one. That's funny. Well, you are a well-formed man. That's how I picked up Marcia. I said, Marcia, your face is so well-formed. It's beautiful. She's a anyway, so, so he is a very likely a handsome man as well. So successful, very important, handsome man. But somehow, somewhere along the way, this guy Naaman developed this devastating skin disease called leprosy. And leprosy back then, it was, a it was kind of a general term. There was a couple different uh, significant skin, infectious skin diseases that were associated with leprosy. Leprosy, by the way, that name comes from, what it, what it means in its root in Greek is to peel off in scales, which kind of gives you a good visual of what leprosy was like. Like literally, their skin was peeling off and even appendages would peel off or would fall off. It's, it was a devastating, devastating kind of disease. We actually still, it's still around today. We call it Hansen's disease today. I thought about maybe putting some pictures up there, but it's just too graphic. It's, 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 it's rough. And so there's a couple of different kinds. Naaman's was very likely the more serious kind. One of them, the, the, the less serious, but was still terrible, didn't last forever. It lasted one to three years. The other one was permanent. 
And so there's a guy, Jay, uh, Jay Hampton Keithley, he describes it this way. I'll read this to you to kind of give you a visual. As this form, the, the more significant form, begins to spread, portions of the eyebrow may disappear. Then spongy tumor-like swellings appear on the face and the body. The disease is systemic and involves the internal organs as well. It's deep-seated in the bones and joints and marrow of the body, resulting in the deterioration of tissue between the bones. The results are deformity, loss of feeling in the appendages, and in the fingers and toes eventually falling off. This form is incurable and lasts until the victim finally dies, often by the invasion of other diseases because of their weakened condition. They may, they may live 20 or 30 years in this miserable condition. So this is, this is Naaman. Naaman is this very popular, very successful, handsome man whose body is deteriorating. It's being disfigured and consumed by this devastating disease. Okay, this is Naaman. So there's this little girl in the story. And one of their raiding parties that, that Aram sends out, they capture this little Israelite girl. So presumably they send this raiding party into Israel. They wreak havoc and then they kind of steal some of the people. And they steal this little Israelite girl. And she becomes a servant in Naaman's household. And so she's like the servant to Naaman's wife. And she sees what her master, Naaman, is experiencing. And it's interesting. She has compassion on him. And she says to him, hey, listen, you know, there might be a way that you could be cured. There's this prophet in Israel. He could cure you. He can do miraculous things, right? And so this is, this is right where our story picks up, okay? I want to read it. So this is 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out, Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Well, Naaman, he hears this, and he goes to his master, and he told the king what the girl uh, from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So this is interesting. Again, they're like kind of fighting with each other, right? And the king of Aram's like, go into Israel, the place that you probably just went for a raid, right? Go to him. I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel with you, and we're going to give... Uh, so Naaman goes, takes 10 talents of silver. You know how much that is? 750 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver, right? 6,000 shekels of gold. You know how much that is? 150 pounds of gold. He's got 900 pounds of precious metals that he takes with him and then 10 sets of clothing. And so the letter he took to the king of Israel read this. This, this makes me chuckle. With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. <laughs> like, this cracks me up. The king of Aram, right, who's at war, kind of at war with the king of Israel. They certainly don't like each other. He's like, here's my second in command. Here's the general that's been wreaking havoc on you and your people, right? He's got this incurable disease. Cure him for me. 
and here's a bunch of precious metal for your troubles. Like, that's essentially what he says. Like, put yourself in the shoes of the king of Israel. How do you think he would respond to that? Well, he responds like you might assume that he would respond. You want me to do what? Like, what are you talking about? Look at, look at verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. And I want to stop right there because we get a little bit of a glimpse into the heart of the king of Israel here, right? And we get a glimpse into his connection with God because you compare his reaction to this man's leprosy with the little girl's reaction to the man with leprosy, right? This little Israelite girl, she sees her master with leprosy and the first thing that she thinks of is there's a God that can heal him. There's a prophet in Israel that could actually heal him, right? First thing that she thinks about. The king of Israel, who should be like dependent on God, and the first thing he thinks about is something God can do, and says he gets frustrated. An idea of a prophet of God healing this guy doesn't even cross his mind, right? And so you see, we get a little bit of a glimpse into his heart and his connection with the Lord. So let's go on. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him and said, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Okay, so let's stop there. Let's talk about this. So Elisha enters the story, right? And he goes to the king. Somehow he hears about this, and he goes to the king. He's like, this, this, I got this. Send him to me. Bring it over. I got, I got this covered for you. And so the king does that. He sends Naaman over to Elisha's house. But it's interesting. Elisha doesn't even go out to greet him. And again, like understand the context here. So you have this very important general from Aram, this very successful, handsome, very important guy who comes over and Elisha doesn't even greet him. Instead, he doesn't even go out to see him. Instead, he sends his messenger or his servant to go tell him, just send Naaman down to the river, the Jordan River, and wash seven times and tell him that he's going to be cured and he's going to be clean, right? Like, think about that. Let's be honest. That feels pretty disrespectful, right? Like, if, if I did that as a pastor to somebody, we'd go, what is wrong with you, right? And yet, it's exactly what Elisha's trying to do. And I think about that, and I think it kind of seems like he's trying to knock him down a couple levels, right? Like, you have this guy, Naaman, who thinks he's very important in people's eyes. And in people's eyes, he is important. He's successful. He's powerful. He's a big deal. But to God, he's just like everybody else, right? So how do you think this very important, this very powerful, this very successful general is going to respond to this messenger coming to him? Not even the prophet himself, but the messenger coming to him and saying, your incurable disease will be cured when you go down to the river and wash really good. <laughs> how do you think he's going to respond to that? Well, not very well. Let's look at it. Uh, look at verse 11. So Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Drama, right? Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? 
And it says he went off in a rage. How does Naaman respond? Well, he's ticked, right? Like, this is below him. He feels like he's being toyed with. Like, if, he was re- if the prophet was really going to cure me, wouldn't he do it in some sort of dramatic way? Like, wouldn't he come out and, like, wave his hand over me and maybe draw attention and you'd see, like, the power of God in this profound way? Not just go wash in the river. Like, I've washed lots of times. The leprosy is still here. By the way, there's nicer rivers where I'm from in Damascus. How's Naaman feeling? He's mad, right? He's ticked off. He's a big deal, and he's not getting the respect that he thinks he deserves. He knew how this healing should go, and it wasn't like this, right? But fortunately, Naaman's servants are wise. They have a lot of wisdom, and they also have the courage to confront their master. Look at it. Look at verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So they convinced him, right? And kind of he humbled himself. He went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored. And he became like that of a young boy. Now, Now watch how Naaman's attitude changes here. This is interesting. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there's no other God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Why do you think, it's interesting, why do you think Elisha wouldn't accept any gifts from Naaman? Why do you think that is? I think he wouldn't accept anything from him because he did not want there to be a bit of confusion in Naaman's heart on who did the healing. It wasn't Elisha that healed him, right? Elisha was just the instrument. The one playing the instrument, the one that actually healed him, was God, right? And so he says, surely as the Lord lives who I serve, I won't accept a thing from you. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. He said, if you will not, said Naaman, please, let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. So give me a bunch of, like, the sacred ground. So remember, he hates Israel. He's, he, like, he would, he would see them as inferior to him, the Israelites. And now he's like, give me a bunch of earth. Give me a bunch of ground, as much as the mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And then Elisha says, go in peace. Pretty powerful story. There's actually more to it with Elisha's servant, Gahani. You should check it out. It's, it's very interesting. But we're going to stop there. Um, and I want to talk about this. So this, by the way, this is what you do. When, when we read the Bible, we read a story. Sometimes we can read the Bible and we're like, okay, I'm going to, I should read, I should read. I'm going to read a chapter of the Bible and we read it and we put it down and we just kind of go on with our day. When we read the Bible, we should do it this way. We dig into it. We understand the context. We understand what it's saying. And then we stop and we go, okay, let's bring it now into the 21st century. And let's talk about what this looks like in my life. How do I apply this to my life? So let's do that. So we're talking about our search for peace. 
right, in this series. We're talking about peace. How would you say Naaman was searching for peace in his life? I think it's pretty clear here. How's he searching for peace? Well, he's searching for peace through physical healing. If I could just be healed, if I, if I just didn't have to deal with this stupid disease any longer, then my life would be perfect. Then I wouldn't be embarrassed by how I look. Then I would be strong in every way, right? He felt like life, he could have peace in his life. He could have completion in his life if he would just be healed. And I think about that and I think, you know, I think many people today um, feel similar, you know? That's one way that we search for peace in life. Maybe for you, it's similar. You have uh, a disease or you have a sickness or an ailment that's bothering you. Maybe it's life-threatening. I don't know. Cancer is so rampant, right? Maybe for you, it's not life-threatening. It's just something that disrupts your day. It, just, it makes life hard for you. And you go, God, if I could just have this cured, if I could just have this taken away, man, my life would be different. I could finally have peace in my life. Or maybe um, it's something that you just don't like about yourself and you wish were different, right? And you go, man, if this was different, I could finally have peace in my life. I remember for me, I'll just be real transparent with you. I remember for me growing up, there were two things about myself that I hated. I hated about, and they weren't life-threatening. I didn't have any illnesses or anything like that. You'll, you'll laugh when I say this, but I'm, I'm saying this with all seriousness. There are two things. I hated that I was short because I love basketball and I thought, man, if I was just taller, like I could have a career here, you know? Like I, love, I wanted to be tall, pray to be tall. God, I just, I, I would, <laughs> there were even times as a kid I ate well so that maybe I would grow. I'd eat vegetables so maybe I'd grow a little more. I wanted to be tall and I didn't want to be bald. Like no joke. That was like, <laughs> if I, I did not want to lose my hair, you know? And so now I look back and I'm like, I, you know, like I embrace, this is how God made me. I embrace this. This is fine. It doesn't bother me at all. In fact, some of you make fun of me for these things now. It's okay. Maybe a bear might attack you. I don't know, but it's okay <laughs> for that. But back then, man, when I was younger, it was like, I thought, I, could, I, I can't have peace in my life unless these things change, unless I grow. I, I stopped growing. I was in like fifth grade. I'm not joking. I was like the tallest kid, one of the tallest kids in fifth grade. And I stopped. And I gotta just change this. I can't have peace in my life until these things change. Well, Naaman wasn't searching for peace because he was short and bald, although we don't know that for sure. They did say he was handsome, so maybe he was short and bald. No, we don't know. We don't, that's not why he was searching for peace. He was searching for peace because he had this incurable disease that was literally devastating his body. And it's interesting, even though he's seeking help from this prophet of God here, he wasn't really seeking God, was he? Like, think about the story. Think about, like, what was his motivation in going to see this prophet? Is it because he thought, yes, there's a powerful God of the universe and he may heal me? I don't think so. I think if somebody told him there was a donkey that could heal him, he would have gone to see the donkey, right? I mean, he just wanted to be healed. But this little Israelite girl says there's a prophet in Israel and he can heal you. And so he went there. But make no mistake, there's no indication here that Naaman was seeking God. There's no indication that he was a God worshiper, that God was important in his life. Let me ask you a question. What do you think was the biggest thing that got in the way of Naaman's healing and almost led him to not be healed? 
What do you think is the biggest thing when you look at this story? I would look at this story and I would go, the biggest obstacle for healing for Naaman that almost made him miss it was pride, right? He was a prideful guy. He wanted to be healed really badly, but he wanted to be healed on his terms. Like me in the dog cage, like he felt like he knew the way to make this happen. And he almost missed it because God's way was different than his way. And, and think about the situation. Think about how humbling. So you got a guy that's high pride, right? Think about how humbling of a situation it would be for, uh, for Naaman to do with this messenger. Not even the prophet, what the messenger told him to do. Go and wash, right? Like he had never washed before since he's had leprosy. I mean, the guy had washed lots of times, let's be honest here. Go and wash and do it in this river that's not particularly pleasant publicly, right? There's no like bath stalls in, in the river, right? You go in the river to wash and everybody sees that. And I don't know how you wash, but most people when they wash don't do it fully clothed, right? And so what happens for him when he has to take his clothes off, what is he exposed to everybody? All of the, the havoc that this terrible disease that he's coming to be cured of has wreaked on his body. And then on top of that, again, I said this earlier, but he would have looked at Israel and even this prophet specifically as, as ethnically and socially inferior to himself. He's a powerful general. This is a prophet of God in Israel. He's nobody, right? And this nobody can't even come out himself and tell him what to do. But he sends his messenger to say, go out, take off your clothes, expose the shame that you hate, that you're coming to be healed of, get in the river and wash just like a commoner, right? It's a humbling situation. What was God doing through Elijah? Well, he's humbling him. And guys, I think, I think that this is a rule of thumb with God. It's true, I, you know, I, I was thinking a lot this week about different other people in the Bible who were healed of various things, who were searching for peace and God gave peace. And I think it's true with almost all of them. I think it's true with almost everybody else that I know that is a lover of God. I know it's true in my life. I say it this way, God often humbles us before he heals us and brings us peace. Originally when I wrote that, I didn't say often, I said always, because I think it's almost always. Occasionally, God brings healing and humility at the same time. Most often, God humbles us before he heals us and brings us peace. It was true with Naaman, it's true for me, and I suspect it's true for many of you. See, in order for us to recognize how great and mighty and powerful God is and to see our need for him, we also have to recognize how weak and helpless and powerless we are. Like we can't, be, we can't even see our need to be healed by God until we recognize just how powerful he is and how much we need him. So let me ask you a question. What does that look like in your life? What does pride look like in your life? Because let's be honest, we all struggle with it at one level or another. Pride, selfishness, arrogance, we all deal with it, right? It, and it's interesting, if there's one thing that God is mo most clearly hates in the Bible, that he talks about over and over and over again, it's pride, right? 
It's pride in us. Why? It disgusts him because we're like stealing what's rightfully his. We're stealing his glory. We're stealing his majesty. And we're saying, that's me. I'm applying those things to myself. It's disgusting to God because we don't deserve it and he does. I challenge you, maybe this, this weekend if you sit here and uh, maybe you're struggling with peace. Maybe you're searching for peace. Maybe you're searching for a healing from God, a different, a, a different sort of depth, seriousness to healing. I would really encourage you to think about your pride, to talk to the Lord about your pride. Is that getting in the way of what God wants to do in your heart and what God wants to do in your life? The second thing that I find really fascinating in what God does inside of Naaman is all about two things. I'd use two words, inconvenience and foolishness. It's all about inconvenience and foolishness. Think about it. Like, think about what Naaman had to do here in order to be healed. He had to go to this place that he didn't like. He had to go all the way from Aram to Israel. He didn't like Israel, right? He has to go all the way over there. Once he's traveled there, he's told, all you got to do is go wash in the river, right? right? Right down the way. Go wash in the river. And he's like, I got two nicer rivers. And he's right, by the way. Like the rivers in Damascus, they, they, they flow from snow-covered mountains. I was, I was reading a little bit about them. They're very clear. They're very beautiful, right? They're legitimately nicer than the Jordan River, right? And so he's got to go all the way over to Israel. He's got to inconveniently go in kind of a dirty public river. And then he's told to wash seven times. Not once, which maybe would be reasonable. Not even twice, which I guess that would be okay, get really clean. But seven times he's got to go there. Like talk about how annoying, right? And inconvenient that would be. And yet, that's the route that God desired to take Naaman on in order to heal him the inconvenient one, the one that doesn't really make sense, the one that's not the most efficient, the one that's not very timely, the one that probably felt very uncomfortable to him and looked like foolishness to other people. Like, can you imagine how foolish it probably felt to Naaman? He comes there to go get cured of an incurable disease and the prophet's like, go wash really well. That's what's going to cure you. I can't imagine how foolish he would have felt. God's healing of Naaman was inconvenient and it was foolish. And guys, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think it's different for us today. Healing and peace are usually paired with inconvenience and foolishness. It's true. Healing and peace that you and I are searching for are often, usually... It's another one that I wanted to say always, usually paired with inconvenience and foolishness. It reminds me of what Paul wrote. So Paul lived after Jesus and he's kind of reflecting on Jesus and what he did on the cross. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross is ridiculous to people that don't accept it, that, that aren't searching for God that aren't looking for forgiveness and peace, right? It reminds me of what Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew 7. He says, so he's talking about how to enter into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, enter through the narrow gate, the, the small one, the, the one that's really tight, the one that's inconvenient, it's not inconvenient, it's not wide open. Enter through the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few few find it. I think about Jesus' life, and I think, man, he inconvenience was the norm for him, right? Like how many times, we looked at one example last week, Jesus gets to the well, he's, he's trekked all this way, he's journeyed all this way, he gets to the well, he's tired and he's thirsty, and what does he stop and do? He's inconvenienced by this woman there, and he talks to her. How many times in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, do we look at the life of Jesus and it's a life of inconvenience? People come to him for healing or a miracle or a teaching or whatever it is, when he's tired, he's exhausted, or he's hungry, or he just needs a little time alone with his father. And yet we'd all look at Jesus' life and we go, man, if there was ever anybody who experienced meaningful peace in his life, it was Jesus. And his life was marked by inconvenience, right? And then how many of the important people, the inconvenience, let's talk about foolishness, how many of the important people back then the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees would look at Jesus and they would go, he's a fool. He's foolish. He's, he's untrained. He's undisciplined. He's an untrained, undisciplined fool, right? Here's a question for you. In your pursuit of healing and peace, are you willing to be inconvenienced and potentially be seen as a fool in other people's eyes? It's a good question for us to wrestle with in your life, in your pursuit of peace, in your pursuit of healing, whatever that looks like for you, are you willing to be inconvenienced? We, I, we can be so impatient, can't we? Inconvenience and impatience don't go well together. They, get, they just butt heads with each other. I, I, I still think about, I still have friends of mine, and I love them, that um, I've been friends with for a long time before I was a Christian, and they would look at my decision to follow Jesus, and still to this day, they would go, I don't get it. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. Like, why would you give up all this other fun stuff that we used to do together? They would look at it as foolish. Still, they would. 20-something years later, they would see it that way. I don't, I don't get it. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with that. Because I would rather succumb to the foolishness of God and the wisdom of man, right? How about you? Are you willing to be inconvenienced in your life, in your pursuit of peace? Are you willing to look foolish in other people's eyes? Let, let me give you one more thing, one more thing that I see from Naaman that I think is significant for us to think about. This last one, um, maybe it's one that, that you gotta dig a little bit deeper to see, but when I look at Naaman and his response and what he did, I see faith, I see faith. And here's what I mean. Naaman's willing to be inconvenienced, right? He's willing to travel all the way to this land that he doesn't like to go into Israel. Naaman's willing to ask a prophet of God. He wasn't a God worshiper, right? He's willing to ask this prophet of God for healing. Naaman's willing to humble himself, to disrobe, to expose his shame, you know, what, like what's all over his body, what's literally eating his body away, and wash in the river, and he was willing to do it not once, not twice, but seven times. Why was he willing to do all of those things? Because he had faith. A little bit, right? 
Not, is it the kind of faith that we would look at and we would go, man, he's a man of God. He trusts God Almighty to bring healing in his life. I want my faith to be like his faith. No, no, right? He's not, that, that's not how he was. How, what kind of faith did he have? A little mustard seed sized faith, right? Just, just a tiny little faith. And what happened? He, he had just, a, just enough faith to go, I don't know, I'm going to try it. Maybe, maybe God can do this. Maybe this healing can come. This sounds ridiculous, but all right, I'm going to go down to the river and I'm going to take off my clothes and I'm going to wash. I'm, I'm, maybe, maybe, just, just a tiny little faith. And what does God do? God shows himself faithful, right? God shows that he's faithful and he gave re- Naaman reason then to trust him more and to trust him more and to trust him more. Guys, listen, God does the same thing with us today. To experience peace, to experience ultimate healing, all God requires of us at first is a little mustard seed-sized faith. You ever seen a mustard seed? See? They are tiny. It's like the smallest of all seeds. That's a hand. That's a tiny little seed. That's what God requires of us just enough faith for us to go I'm scared I feel the weight of everything I don't know if you can save me or not but I'm going to trust you enough to reach out my hand to you and what does God do he shows himself faithful and he rescues us and he wipes away all of our guilt he wipes away all of our shame he gives us a new heart with a different sort of capacity to love and to be loved by other people, right? And then he grows that little mustard seed-sized faith. It's not all we need forever, but it's all we need at first. And then God takes it from there. He's the one who does the work. He's the one that grows our faith by showing himself faithful. I'd say it this way. Here's my last point. Ultimate healing and peace always begins with a little bit of faith. Always. That's an always. Ultimate healing, ultimate peace always begins with a little bit of faith every time. So, so here we are, we're at Christmas week. The potential for peace for each of us, a different sort of peace has come. It's available. God the Father has sent God the Son to take on flesh, to be born as a little baby to Joseph and Mary. And this little son changes everything. His life changes everything. You know, when I think about Naaman, I'll end with this. When I think about Naaman and I look at the healing that he received, the physical healing that he received wasn't the most significant healing that he got, right? I mean, God, God did uh, supernaturally, he healed Naaman of this incurable disease, this unhealable disease. And sometimes God does that in our lives too, right? This morning, if you sit here and you're begging God to bring healing to you, a particular disease, sometimes God does that in our lives too. Sometimes he doesn't, right? But the more significant healing that Naaman received that day was spiritual. He was, he was fundamentally healed. His soul was healed. And God makes that healing available to every single one of us any time we want it. Anytime we reach up with that little mustard seed-sized faith, and he'll rescue us. He promises that healing 
Naaman lived hundreds, actually thousands of years, hundreds of years before Jesus. We live after. We've seen what Jesus has done. We've seen how much the Father loves us. God's plan for our ultimate healing and salvation and peace has been laid out for us. My question to you is, have you said yes to that? Have you accepted that peace that he offers?